series, as we said, on miracles, and um, where we, we long to be a people, a people who, who see kingdom breakthrough in our here and now. We read these stories. Kath loves that. We read these stories, and we want them to be a reality of our here and now, of our day today, to see signs and wonders of God. And we've been exploring some of the interactions that Jesus has in Matthew 8 and 9. This is the last in the series. We're coming into land before we get to the excitement of Christmas um, next week. And Jesus ends these interactions with just these few verses. It says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. That's what we've been reading about. He's walking through these communities, he's meeting people, he's encountering people, people who are broken, people who are hurting, people who need healing, people who need deliverance, and he is doing it. He is doing the stuff that we long to see. And then it says this, when he saw the crowds, because there were so many more, there were so many more. These are the stories that we read, but there are so many more. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. And that's where we're landing this series, on the compassion that God has, the compassion that Jesus shows, the compassion that we are called and asked to model, invited to model to a world where there are hapless and helpless people, people like, who are like sheep without a shepherd. And here's the reality. All of us feel like that almost all of the time anyway. So let's pray. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, Lord, I thank you that you're here. I thank you that you're already moving, that you're already speaking, that you're already ministering to people across this room, on the live stream, everywhere, Lord. But Lord, we, we dare to ask for more. Lord, we, if we're honest, we do feel like sheep without a shepherd sometimes. And so, Lord, we want to place ourselves in your hands this afternoon and ask that you would lead us. We ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would transform us, that you would change us from the inside out. So come and have your way, Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we've been working through some of these encounters, and, and hidden throughout these encounters is this thread of compassion, this thread of mercy. So here's the context. He's just come down from the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew 5 to 7, this, this kind of huge manifesto of what he's here to do, the teaching that Jesus has. And he comes down the mountain, and he encounters these crowds. They're all surrounding him. They're like, yeah, yeah I want to do that stuff. Like, how do, we, how do we make that a reality? I'm hurting. I'm broken. I feel like those people that you're talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Can you come and do it? And he starts doing it. He starts doing it, but Hidden throughout this is this thread of compassion. Before every encounter that he has, he is moved with compassion. He's just given everything he has, the best teaching he has. And if I'm really honest, if I have a good moment where I do some good teaching, do you know how many people I want to see after that? Almost no one. That is the reality. And he walks into this moment and he's got crowds of people, this throng of people who are all around him. And he has deep, deep compassion upon them. He wants to do the stuff that he has been talking about. There's a man with leprosy. He says, Lord, if you're willing, if you're willing to do it, make me clean. He says, I am willing. 
I am willing. I have compassion upon you. The centurion servant, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed. is suffering terribly. And Jesus says, shall I come to him? He's just had this. He's got crowds all around him. And he's saying, shall I come to him? Shall I go out of my way to come and help? He has compassion upon him. There's a paralyzed man. Take heart, son. Take heart. A posture of compassion. Your sons are forgiven. A woman bleeding for 12 years. Take heart, daughter. Take heart. Your faith has healed you. The healing of the blind and the mute. Have mercy on us, son of David. We know who you are. Have mercy upon us. Show us your compassion, and he does. And then it goes to this, as we read before. Jesus went through everywhere, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion upon them because they were harassed and helpless. Jesus, again and again, he's pouring out compassion upon his people. And we're going to get to the point later on where we see this is intrinsically linked to the miracles that he is performing. Like this feels like a little bit of a strange place to end. In some ways, we should put this right up front and say a precursor to ever seeing an inbreaking of the kingdom of God, of seeing an encounter, seeing when someone might be healed, seeing when deliverance might take place, is having compassion upon them, sharing with the compassion that God has for them. Before we jump ahead and ask out how we live this out, we're going to go right back. We're going to go right back near to the beginning of Scripture, which gives us a bit of a helpful framework into the kind of God that we have, the kind of God that is revealed in Jesus. So we're going to Exodus 34. If you've got your Bible with you or your phone, head to Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6. It'll be up on the screen as well. We're on another mountain this time. We're on Mount Sinai, where the new covenant is being Um, given to to Moses. It's being revealed afresh who God is, what his name is, what his nature is, what his character is, the very being of who God is, not what he's like, but what he is, who he is. And it says this, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, the glory of God passing by. This would have been crazy. Let's just have a moment to recognize that. This would have been crazy. The glory of God passing by. And he proclaims, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is who I am. I am Yahweh. Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, today we're going to get into a little bit of Hebrew and Greek. Are we up for that? That's right, guys. Let's go. Okay. We've got some tough pronunciations coming our way. So we go back to the passage. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. And compassionate is this word. Here it comes. Rachum. Okay, can you say that with me? Rachum. Rachum. Do it one more time. Rachum. Okay, if someone next to you has got a cold, you're going to feel that phlegm coming up. It's good. Just embrace it. Embrace it. We're not finished yet because it stems from the word rechem. Say again, rechem. Rechem. The word compassionate here stems from the Hebrew word womb. The womb, the very innermost part, an intimate part, a part that you feel, a part that hurts, a part that grows, a part that contracts, a part that fosters new life. To be a compassionate God means to be a wombie God. To be a wombie God. We might know that our word, our English word for compassion comes from two Latin words 
stuffed together to mean to suffer with, come with, passio, to suffer. You're willing to suffer with, but the Hebrew goes so much further to this feeling, this guttural sensation of fighting for life that isn't out there, it's within, it is within you. It resonates deep within your physical body, not a cerebral sense of pity, of of just mercy, like, I, I really hope that you get better, but a deep experience within. And it's not that God displays this compassion. It's not that he is like compassion. It's that it is his character. It's his feeling towards you and towards me. That's the feeling that he has towards us. And that should be incredibly reassuring when we look back over this series of of the pain of living in the now and the not yet. We've talked about that almost every single week, longing for breakthrough, longing to see it. And yet every single one of us in this room, if we're honest, at times we felt let down. We felt let down when the breakthrough seemingly never comes. It never comes in the way we're expecting it. It never comes in the timeline that we wanted it. We rock up ready to enjoy some worship, which is always amazing. We hear someone talking about obedience, about acting, praying in obedience. That's what we've done for years for the healing of a family member. And the next week, they get the next part of the medical diagnosis. No healing. No healing. We turn up to hear a a preach about faith, full of that good feeling as you go. He won't. No, he won't. He won't fail. You feel so good. You're like, energized. Let's do this. We can attack the world. And then your best mate, they relapse again. Again. You've been journeying with them in their alcohol addiction, and they relapse. Again, you feel like faith just drains out of your body. We drag ourselves into this room. It feels hard to just drag yourself out of bed let alone drag yourself to be in this place. You're battling depression. You hear a scorcher of a talk about authority that we have in the spirit for healing, for breakthrough. We go up for prayer, nothing. We ask our hub to pray for us, nothing. With every ounce of strength and seed of faith that we have, we ask for a group of friends to continue to pray for us. And the next day we wake up feeling exactly the same, nothing. I know that this series has been incredibly helpful for a huge number of people longing to see breakthrough, hungry to do whatever it takes to learn together about how we see more of the kingdom breaking in. And I know that this series has been incredibly hard for many who have to turn up week in, week out, having to face the reality of what it means to be a people who live in the now and the not yet. In fact, the reality is we're all living both ends of that scale almost all the time. We're seeing the inbreaking of the kingdom and we're experiencing the pain of the reality of not seeing it in all its fullness. And Pete did a phenomenal talk right at the beginning. So if you haven't heard that, go back to it. But breakthrough is available and yet the battle still rages on. Breakthrough is available, but we are in the midst of a battle. Every word we sang earlier is 100% true and yet every disappointment we experience is painful. We are a people who are hungry, hungry to see the continuing inbreaking of God's kingdom, but it's costly. It's really costly to give your heart to that. 
So to come back to today, we should find it incredibly reassuring that God is compassionate towards his people, always, in every situation, in every time, for everyone. No matter where you are on that scale today, no matter where you're going to be on that scale when you leave this place, God is compassionate towards you. He is disposed towards you. That is where he is pointing. That is where his love is directed. We know this. It says this in Isaiah 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion, Rahim, on the child of her womb? We look towards God, and the image that we're given is of a mother's face, eight inches away, staring into the big eyes of her baby, sustaining that baby with her own life. That is the God that we have. That is the God of compassion. In Greek literature, you'll, you'll often come across two broad um, buckets for, for love. You'll get the love of benevolence and the love of attachment. The love of benevolence is a love that you can offer to other people, whether you like them or not. Let's be honest. Some of the people that we are called to love, we don't like. We don't like them very much, but we can do something that's transactional. We can offer something of our love. We can serve them. We can show kindness. That is an act of will. But a love of attachment is an act of the heart, where you bind your heart up with the well-being of something or someone. What happens to it affects you. And that means you become vulnerable. It means you become really vulnerable. Because now you're not self-sufficient. You're leaning upon others. The attachment that you have put in their hands, your heart is bound up with their life. And that can be really painful. And yet it is absolutely stunning. God's heart is attached to us. That's what we read about. That's what this God of compassion is. His heart is attached to us. More than that, it's voluntarily attached to us. He has chosen to do that. We depend on people, on things, to love well, to do life well. Nothing, God depends on nothing. God is all dependent on himself. And yet he says, no, no, I want to attach myself to you, my people. I want to attach myself to the human condition of pain, of suffering. It's absolutely extraordinary. If you come here today feeling, I don't understand how I've got here. I don't know where I'm going in life. I don't know what my purpose is. Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion. And the word used here, because we're in the, the New Testament now, is this word, splachnon. It's another good one, isn't it? Come and say it after me, splachnon. Well done. Um, so this is a Greek word which means a very similar thing. It's the bowels, it's, the, it's your gut, it's your inner parts. It's this visceral, experiential, guttural sensation. This is what Jesus has towards the crowds. This is what Jesus has towards you. This is what Jesus has towards me. He voluntarily attaches himself to us, to our pain, to our fragility, to our suffering, to our longings, and our hopes. He's so voluntarily attached, in fact, that it takes him all the way to the cross. He cannot help but go to the cross, to the grave, and to new life. He is completely attached to us that he has to overcome the barrier so that we might have relationship with him. That is the God that we believe in. 
And before we look at a, a story of Jesus that demonstrates this really powerfully, I just want to note that compassion throughout Scripture is, is almost always associated with at least one of, of two things um, that's going to be relevant for us today. One is forgiveness. The other is deliverance. Compassion is almost never isolated on its own. It almost always comes with at least one of compassion, of forgiveness and deliverance. Forgiveness implies failure. Forgiveness implies that we've turned away, that we've walked in a different direction, and yet a compassion of God leans himself towards us and says, I forgive you. It's not that I just see you. It's not that I just experience the pain that you're going through. I forgive you. And the other is deliverance. And this is where we start to realize the power of why this sits within a series about miracles. He doesn't just stand at a distant off and say, I feel that pain, but he says, I want to do something about it. I want to do something about the brokenness that I see. God is deeply invested in people emotionally, and God is imminently responsive to do something. He will always move. He will always act. God is consistently moved by compassion, and he is persistently moved to action. Those things are not separable. They are inseparable. And it's easy to think, as I say, sticking compassion on the end of this series is like a, a little kind of kindness chaser after a challenging series of, of talks about a longing to see more signs, more wonders in our time. But we see again and again through Scripture, miracles don't occur without first being moved to compassion. And compassion isn't experienced without necessarily being moved to action. You can't have one without the other, otherwise we're in a world of pain. We're called to pray, to declare, to proclaim, to take authority, to heal, to deliver when we experience the pain, the heart of compassion that the Father has. We cannot untangle these two when we read the Bible, and especially when we look at the ministry of Jesus. We read these, these signs and wonders that we've been doing over these last few weeks. And, and in John, in a different gospel to Matthew, these miracles start with the turning of water into wine at a wedding, and the signs end at a funeral. And it's an extraordinary encounter. This final sign it is so offensive to Jewish authorities at the time that it leads them to decide once and for all, we cannot help but kill Jesus. This is the only solution that we have. So coming up on the screen, this is going to be a painting of this story by Rembrandt, the, the 17th century artist about this encounter, if it helps to look at that as we tell this story. But we can too easily think that God is, is distant from the suffering that we experience. But in this story, you can follow it along in John 11 if you want, Jesus um, has one of his best mates, Lazarus, who's sick, who's really, really sick. So sick, in fact, that his sisters, Mary and Martha, they send word, Lord, the one that you love, the one that you love is sick. And they realize he's all that we need. We've, we've heard of the stories of what Jesus has been doing. We've seen it with our own eyes. We've met the people who've been changed by these encounters with him. We know what he can do. We know the power that he has. We know the relationship he has with God the Father so all we need is for Jesus to come and be present. Maybe not even that. Maybe he can just do it from where he is. Those are the stories of which we read about. They know that they need him. 
And in this moment, the disciples, as they're with Jesus, they hold their breath. What is he going to say? Why? Because if he goes back to Judea, which is where Lazarus was, it's this place, Bethany, was in Judea. The Jews had been trying to, at last count, stone Jesus to death. He was so offensive to them. The disciples would have still had the bruises on their body if they were standing around Jesus and they were like, please don't take us back there. You're doing such good stuff here. Don't take us back. I know he's your friend, but maybe we can do this from a distance. Maybe we can think of a different solution. Please, can we not go back? And he says, no, we're going we're gonna to wait. We're going to wait. Don't worry, this isn't going to end in death. So we're going to wait. We're going to see the glory of God and all the disciples, they sigh a sigh of relief. We're going to be okay. We're going to be all right. We're here a little bit longer. Two days later, Jesus says, it's time to go. And all the disciples are like, no, 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 Rabbi, this is going to be a terrible idea. If you go there, they're going to kill you. More than that, they're going to kill the rest of us. This is what we read about. Let's go with him eventually, they say, so that we can die with him. It feels so certain of the end that they are moving into that they're like, please, can we not do this? We don't need to do this. And Jesus says, no, we need to go. So they start traveling. And they get to just outside the village of Bethany and and Martha, the same Martha who'd been running around serving Jesus as he was teaching in their house. She comes and says, Lord, if you'd been here, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. So Lazarus has died. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Jesus and his disciples, they've missed the funeral. They've missed the burial. They've missed the healing that everyone so longed for, so wanted. And Martha stands in front of him and said, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. A declaration of faith, absolutely, that he could have changed it, but also a declaration of incredible anger. If you'd been here, if you'd been here, it would have been different. And yet she says, I know that God will give you whatever you ask for. A glimmer of hope. I'm angry. I'm full of faith. But I have some level of hope. And he says, go in and get Mary. So she goes back home into the village, says to Mary, the teacher wants to see you. And she gets up immediately. She runs out of the village, finds Jesus. Lord, if you'd been here, if you had been here, things would have been different. It would have been different. I've got faith for that. I know what you do. I know what you're like. And yet you weren't here. And this time it's different. She is weeping. She is an absolute mess, fallen at his feet, broken. Because she thought she knew this guy. She thought he was all that. She thought that this was something that he could do. That this was something he was willing to do for his best friend. For this group of siblings. And it breaks Jesus. In this encounter, it breaks Jesus. He's watching this moment and he's overcome with emotion. He is moved in spirit, it says. It says in the text when we translate it well enough, he's groaning. He's shuddering. He's full of anguish. He has this cry of pain. We don't know what's going on. Maybe he's confronted with human pain, the reality of the grief that she's encountered the weakness and fragility of people, of what death means when it's his own friend. 
Maybe he's confronted with the pain of what his own death will give to the people who are around him, his friends, his family, how much this is going to hurt them because this is coming. It's on its way. And he just says, take me to him. Take me to the body. Take me to my friend. And they walk away and they're both an absolute wreck. They're weeping on their way to go and find Lazarus. And you hear the whispers of people around them. Oh, wow, he really loved Lazarus, how he loved his, his friend. That's so deep. That's absolutely extraordinary. And then others saying, isn't this the same guy who was healing people who were blind? Why couldn't he have helped his friend? Why didn't he just come a little bit earlier? I don't understand. I thought this was the Jesus that we've heard all about. So they go to the tomb. And Jesus says, take away the stone. And by now, Mary's getting nervous because the body's been there for four days. This wouldn't have been nice. She literally says out loud, this, this is going to be an awful smell. This is going to be absolutely horrific. Because he's dead. He's dead. And Jesus says, no, take away the stone. And they're all like, I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on. And Jesus stands in front of this new hole in the cave and he just shouts, Lazarus! And all of these eyes stare at Jesus. They're like, he's dead. He's the man that we were longing that you were here for. Don't you understand? He's dead. He is dead. And he goes on, Lazarus, come out. And suddenly all of the eyes stare towards this hole in the rock. And in the light of the shadows, you just start to see some movement. You start to see something coming out. And suddenly you see this man dressed in grave clothes, dressed in cloths, dressed in all of the things that they would have adorned his body with, starting to walk out. He must have been so weak. He must have been stumbling. Can you imagine? Four days dead. And this body that started to decompose is stumbling out of this tomb. We read these stories as if they just happened. This is a dead man walking. This is a dead man who is alive. This is a dead man who is breathing. Who's coming back to see his sisters. Who's coming back to see his best friend absolutely extraordinary and he says take off the grave clothes they don't suit you anymore they're not what you were for take off the grave clothes you were made to wear something different and they get on with life the Jewish authorities who were there they walk off and they realize this can't go on it's game over and they plot his death and now we're into the final chapters of his life in John's gospel the invitation for us today, as the people of God, is to share in the compassion of Jesus. That's not just a sentiment. That's not just kindness. That's not just being kind towards people. That is bringing people back from death. That is bringing the parts of people that are dead back to life. It is bringing the broken back into community. It's bringing those who are hurting into a place where they can experience the healing of God it's a place where people who are oppressed can experience the deliverance of God. This stuff is powerful. It's powerful. But it's messy and it hurts. It grabs us. It drags every emotion, every feeling 
every painful sensation that we have into the presence of God and into the presence of one another. And as we look at Jesus, we see so much of what we're called to be. If we long to see the breakthroughs, if we long to see signs and wonders. And what we see is a ministry marked out by tears and a ministry marked out by power. A ministry marked out by tears, absolutely. But a ministry that leads to power, to power. Those two things go together. Charles Spurgeon, who was a a preacher in the 19th century, he called the tears of Jesus' followers liquid prayers. The tears that you have when you just sit in your bedroom and you think of the brokenness of the world, you think of the, the pain that your friend is going through, when you think of the unimaginable consequence of war that's going on around the world, those are liquid prayers. It's a ministry of tears that you're participating in. There'll be some in the room, some listening, watching online, I'm sure, where emotion comes easily. In fact, it probably feels like emotion comes too easily. You wish that that would be taken away. You wish that your heart was just a little bit harder. You have nurtured and tended to the most beautiful gift. Don't wish it away. A ministry of tears that allows you to share the heart of God for his people. Spurgeon, that same guy, also said this. He said, those who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. If you want to swim and operate within the sea of pain, if you want to be in that place where you can experience the suffering of others, you will gather up rare pearls. You will participate in something really stunning. But here's the reality. Here's the reality of living in a culture like ours in a city like London is that it's incredibly overwhelming. It's overwhelming to open yourself up to the possibility of of binding your heart to those around you, to open yourself up to the pain of a place, the pain of of a people. And if you feel easily, you'll know that there's a temptation to move towards just paralysis. You don't know what to do with it. It's just too much. Emotion floods your body and you feel like you are paralyzed. There is nothing you can do. And the truth is that many of us have had a taste of that and we go for the complete opposite end of the scale, which is that we do everything we can to numb the pain. Numb the pain, not just that we see around us, but numb the pain within. We just want to bury it, get rid of it, try and get it to go away. It's too hard. It's too hard. And we often spend our time bouncing between those things. Numbness to paralysis to numbness to paralysis. But it's in the space between that we are being asked to live, where we feel it all, where we weep over a city, where the pain of a neighbor shakes and hurts us to our core, where we are so present to the reality of the present, so in touch with the pain that people are feeling and experiencing, and yet we're moved to action. We're moved to a ministry of power to do something with that. That's, by the way, the season that we're in. We've just entered the season of Advent in the church. Advent is a stunning season. In so many ways, we, we wait. We wait for something that's already happened. We say the words, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That's what we're doing as we wait until Christmas. We wait for something in the past. But if you know your church liturgical calendar as well as I do, I see you. We're also remembering something of our future. 
but remembering the future that we are moving towards, these apocalyptic readings of Revelation. That is the, the future that we're all heading towards, and yet we stand in the middle in this moment, and we are trying to be attentive to the present, but it hurts. It's incredibly challenging to do that. It's costly to hold the space, to live in the middle of it. It literally drags us apart. And I wanted to do everything I could to finish this talk by getting to a place where I'm like, some people, you just feel really deeply, and for others, you you don't feel very much, and, and that's cool. We kind of all have our own gift, and to some extent, that's true. And yet, I strongly feel like to share in the ministry of Jesus, there is a ministry of tears that we are being asked to get acquainted to. We're having to grow. For some of us, that's going to be a lot of growth. For others, suddenly there's some language to what you're experiencing all the time. You're like, thank goodness, what do I do now? What do I do now? And here's the the thing you do now is that in many ways, it's just too much for us to hold. It's too much pain to carry in your body, and that's true. And We have to find an outlet. And Jesus shows us that a ministry of tears is so intrinsically linked with a ministry of power to go and do something about it. It's somehow, and I don't understand it, but in this guttural, visceral experience of compassion that we have, that authority increases. It's in this visceral feeling of anger and internal dissonance that fuels our faith, that we want to see something change. We long to see the future coming into the present. It's the liquid prayers, the tears that provides so much hope to a despairing world. Don't be afraid of it. If you feel like you spend more time than you think is reasonably okay in tears, you're not in a bad place. You're being asked to minister from that place, to minister with power, with authority, with faith, with obedience, with prayer, to see people experience the goodness of God, to see miracles, to see signs, to see wonders. We first, we have to get acquainted with a posture of pain, a ministry of tears. And to not be overwhelmed by the reality of pain, we, we've got to get acquainted with the practice of power, of signs and wonders for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God.